Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 8? If you're new with us, God bless you. Welcome. It's good to see you this morning. And just to let you know, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And we are in chapter 8, where Jesus actually gets into the uh, most heated confrontation of his ministry with the scribes and Pharisees. Before it was all over, uh, they would accuse him of being a child of fornication, verse 41, illegitimate, and he would call them children of the devil, verse 44. So uh, as we said, buckle your seatbelts, gets a little bumpy from here on out. But this confrontation started with uh, when Jesus declared himself to be Yahweh, the great I am in verse 12, and not only that, but Messiah, and it ended with his enemies picking up stones to kill him, verse 59. And so, guys, as we study John 8, understand that the whole chapter is built around Jesus' declaration of divinity, which led him to go four rounds, as we have said, four rounds with these Jewish leaders. We looked at round one last week. Uh, we called round one light and darkness, verse 12 to 20. We are in round two, which uh, I've called life and death, from verses 21 to 30. So let's read verse 21. Then Jesus said to them again, he's talking to the Jewish leaders now, uh, scribes and the Pharisees, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I, am, where I go, you cannot come. And he said to them, You are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Now, as we said last week, there are two states of existence that all human beings belong to, two entirely different worlds or kingdoms. And Jesus is alluding to that fact right here. As we said last week, these states are what the New Testament refers to as the state of spiritual death, and the state of spiritual life. Spiritual death is entered into through physical birth. Everyone born into this world is born in a state of spiritual death. Spiritual life is entered into when a person receives Jesus as their Savior and is then born again. These two births become the entry points into two very different kingdoms ruled by two very different kings. One king, of course, is the God of the Bible, Yahweh. The other is the God of this world, Satan. The Bible calls God's kingdom a kingdom of life and light. And it calls Satan's kingdom a kingdom of death and darkness. When Jesus told these men that he was from above and they were from beneath, he was saying, I am from above heaven, the kingdom of God. You are from beneath. You are of the devil's kingdom kingdom of darkness. When Jesus said in verse 12, I am the light of the world, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life, let me paraphrase uh, what he was saying in a sense, in essence. Uh, he was essentially telling them that the supernatural God of heaven, the God of light, invaded the natural realm, a realm of darkness through the incarnation, and that by dying on the cross and rising from the dead, well, he opened a way for every human being 
to be able to cross from the realm of death and darkness, Satan's kingdom, into God's kingdom of life and light. Didn't he say this in John 14, verse 6? I am the way to the Father. I am the way. In John 3, when Jesus talked about the new birth, he said that all those who experience this birth are born again. Some of your translations might say born from above. Both are applicable. But I want to key in on the one that translates it born from above. Because that's what Jesus is kind of talking about here. When a person receives him, the one who came down from heaven, from above, when they receive him as Lord and Savior, they are born from above. They become uh, a member of the family of God in heaven, God's family. Of course, the good news, as we said last week, God is inviting anyone who is willing to be a part of his family to come, to come. As we said, you can't join God's family. You've got to be born into it. To be born into it, you must believe in and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, at which time you are born into the family of God. You've passed from spiritual death into glorious, everlasting spiritual life. However, Jesus went on to stress, and we're reviewing just a little bit from last week. However, Jesus went on to stress that to these, excuse me, he stressed that point to these religious leaders, that there is no salvation for those who reject him as the great I am. Verse 24, he said, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Again, I want to point out the word he in verse 24 is in italics, which means it's not there in the Greek. What Jesus really said was, therefore I said to you that, it, that you will die in your sins. And the idea is die and go to hell. If you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Of course, I am is the name of God. You can check out Exodus 3. Moses said to God, you're telling me to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let your people go. I don't even know your name. Who should I tell Pharaoh is sending me? God said, you tell him I am is sending you. One of the essential doctrines that a person must believe in if they're going to be forgiven of their sins and go to heaven is to believe that Jesus is Yahweh, the great I am. Now, that brings us to verse 25. When he said that, of course, they knew what he was saying. They weren't reading the translation. They were hearing it from the mouth of the Lord himself. He, they knew he said, if you don't believe a go in me, I am, you're going to die in your sins. And they said in verse 25, they said to him, who are you? Who are you? Now, if you read the commentators, they don't really know uh, how to take that question. They're not sure exactly the, um, uh, the idea behind it. Was this a sincere question? Okay, where the scribes and Pharisees said, okay, all right, we really want to know once and for all, tell us, who are you? Okay, was this uh, kind of a uh, sarcastic retort? Who are you to tell us that we're going to die in our sins and go to hell? Who do you think you are? Don't you know who we are? Or... Possibly was it simply a rhetorical question, you know, a question not really looking for an answer that reflected their stunned disbelief that someone could be so bold as to say the things that Jesus had just said. I mean, who are you? Who do you think you are? To 
to make these claims. Now you can pick as, you know, what kind of question you think it was, but the real important issue is the answer that Jesus gave in response to the question. So they said, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been saying to you from the beginning, from the beginning of my ministry. Warren Worsby, who just went to be with the Lord uh, about a week and a half ago, tremendous man of God, he said, and I quote, it seems incredible that these religious experts, quote unquote, should ask, who are you? He had given them every evidence that he is the Son of God, yet they had deliberately rejected the evidence. Our Lord's reply may be expressed, I am exactly what I said. In other words, why should I teach you new things or give you new proof when you have not, uh, not honestly considered the witness I have already given, end quote. Another author put it this way, said, and I quote, the overwhelming evidence made it patently obvious who Jesus was. So he merely replied that he was who he had been claiming to be from the beginning of his ministry. He had nothing more to say to their willful ignorance, excuse me, he, he had nothing more to say to their willful ignorance of hard-hearted unbelief, end quote. Remember what Jesus had said earlier in Luke's gospel, chapter 8, verse 18. He said, therefore, take heed how you hear. And he was talking to these guys, maybe not the same ones, but scribes and Pharisees. Take, therefore, take heed how you hear. For whoever has, to him more will be given. And whoever does not have, even what he seems to have, will be taken from him. What exactly is he saying? Well, the New, the New Living Translation, second edition, I think makes it a little clearer. He, they translate this, Jesus saying, so pay attention to how you hear what I'm saying. To those who listen to my teaching, I mean really listen, not just let it go in one or out the other, more understanding will be given to you. But for those who are not listening, even what they think they understand will be taken away from them. This wasn't the first time that Jesus had condemned these men for their hard-hearted, obstinate unbelief in refusing to believe what he was saying about himself and rejecting him as their king and messiah. In chapter 5, verses 39 and 40, you remember he said to them, You search the scriptures. Because you think in them, you think you have eternal life. But the scriptures point to me, yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. And so now basically Jesus is saying to them, look, I'm done. I am done giving you God's truth. It was pointless to continue to declare truth to these men who were unwilling to accept what he'd already given them in the way of truth. I mean, think about it. They knew exactly what he had been teaching. They followed him around. This comes through in different passages, all right? While his disciples, and often he had a big crowd that followed him and were listening to uh, his teaching. And sometimes you get, and then, you know, these guys would speak up and say, you know, they were in the, in the crowd, the scribes and the Pharisees. They knew what he had been teaching. And Jesus is saying, look, why should I tell you any more truth when you won't accept what I've already given you? Guys, to hard-hearted, rebellious, and obstinate people, God will only say so much and then only for so long before he goes silent. If you're not going to 
do anything with the truth he's already given you, why should he give you more? If you won't live up to the light you have, why should he give you more light? And in fact, he'll begin to remove the light you have. Jesus exemplified this when he stood before Herod on the morning of his crucifixion and would not say a word to him. Luke 23, verses 8 and 9. Now when Herod saw Jesus, because Pilate didn't want to deal with this guy. Pilate didn't want to deal with Christ. He found out that uh, he lived in, he was from Herod's jurisdiction, and Herod was in town in, uh, in Jerusalem for the Passover. He drop-kicked him over into Herod's uh, lap, you know. And Herod was, at first, was very happy because, you know, he was exceedingly glad, it says, for he desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. So, oh, good, maybe he'll entertain me with a miracle. Verse 9, then he questioned Jesus, Herod did, with many words. But listen, Jesus answered him nothing. Herod knew what Jesus was teaching. Herod knew what Jesus was claiming about himself. And because Herod did not accept what Christ had already said, Jesus was silent. He would give Herod no more truth. In verse 26 of John 8, we read, I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. Commentators aren't all in agreement as to exactly what the Lord is saying here. Let me tell you what I believe based on what I've been able to study. I believe Jesus is basically saying to these men that he could, could go on and on telling them how wicked they were, and in how many ways they had constantly violated the very law of Moses they claimed to love and to keep faithfully. You can read Matthew 23 for how he really blasts these guys. But he goes on, he's basically saying with the Father, I could go on and on all day about you guys and how you are hypocrites and wicked men and you come across as spiritual holy men of God. You are nothing but the devil's spawn. Basically, was on to say that. Um, but the father had only authorized him to say so much to these men at this time. Someday, they would stand before him on the day of judgment. And as Peter said, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And then he would reveal the entirety of their wickedness and sin before passing judgment upon them. Verse 26. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. One commentator said, and I quote, it seems that their minds were becoming more and more clouded all the time. Previously, when the Lord Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, they had realized he was claiming equality with God the Father, but not so much anymore. Again, Luke 8, 18. Take heed how you hear. What does that mean? When you come to church and you hear the word of God, you better listen carefully and not just dismiss it, you know, out of hand. There's a lot of folks that hear a lot of truth, but they don't do much with any of it. Take heed how you hear, for if you sincerely listen and embrace whatever light you can get your hands on from God's word, God will give you more light. 
Don't let anybody ever tell you, well, what about the poor native in Africa or, you know, uh, you know somewhere else in the world that, that's never heard the gospel? If they look up into the night sky and see the creation and know that there must have been a, a God who made all of this, the creation declares the glory of God. It's such a, a divine uh, revelation of his reality. God's, Paul said, whoever looks at the creation and denies the existence of God, God will hold them accountable on the day of judgment. So if that person looks out into nature and says, there must be a God who made this. I want to know him. I guarantee you, if God has to send an angel from heaven, he'll get you the information you need. He'll give you more light. You'll be saved. But if you don't take heed how you hear God's truth, whatever you think you have in the way of light, it's going to be eventually taken away from you. For some reason, I thought of the term dumb and dumber when I read that. It's like these guys are getting dumber and dumber. They're getting more and more intelligent and enlightened. They're rejecting everything Jesus said. They're getting dumber and dumber. In the beginning of his ministry, they were comprehending some things. Now it's like, duh, they, they, have, they haven't got a clue, all right? That's because the darkness was descending. The light was being withdrawn. Verse 28, Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. Of course, when Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, he was referring to being lifted up on the cross. We know that clearly from other passages, John 3, 14. And as Moses, Jesus said, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness on that, uh, that pole, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, the ideas on the cross. John 12, verses 32 and 33. Jesus said, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying what? death he would die the lord jesus said when you lift me up then then you will know that i am yahweh the great i am and notice that the he is also in italics there which means it's not there in the greek okay the idea is when you lift me up then you will know that i am i am jehovah god one author said, and I quote, The cross would reveal once and for all who he really was. Matthew describes the Calvary miracles, the darkening sky, the rent, uh, the, uh, and the rent rocks, the opening of the graves, and the tearing in two of the temple veil. He records the testimony of the centurion and of those who were with him. Truly, this was the Son of God, they said. Luke adds his voice, and, uh, and all the people came together to that site, beholding the things which were done on the cross, and smote their breasts and returned. They realized this was no mere man. There was no doubt that a terrible crime had been committed against which heaven and earth alike proclaimed their protest. Moreover, all this was only preliminary proof. Then ye will know that I am, Jesus said. Three days later, he rose from the dead and put an end to all doubt, except for those who were unwilling to believe. You know, it was Ray Comfort who wrote a book with the title, You Can Lead an Atheist to the Truth, but You Can't Make Him Think. You can lead people to the truth, 
You can't make them believe or even think if they are convinced they do not want to believe. Verse 28, again, Jesus said, and, uh, you know, um, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. Many of the things that Jesus knew, he learned the same way we learn things. From his education at home, then what he learned when he went to school, and yeah, they had schools, from reading the scriptures, meditating on them, and studying the word of God. Other things he learned directly from his father, he tells us, through his constant communion with the father. That's how we learn too. It's our responsibility to study, to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We have a responsibility to study God's word. But as we do, and as we spend time with him in fellowship and prayer, he reveals things to us. The Holy Spirit does. He leads us into all truth. But listen, in saying this, that Jesus, as he said, I never did anything except what my father told me to do and never said anything except what my father told me to say and teach. Listen to me. He was exemplifying man before the fall. Jesus was the perfect example of what God originally created man to be, absolutely dependent upon and obedient to his creator in all things. This is why Jesus constantly made statements like the one we read in verse 28. I do nothing of myself. As my Father taught me, I speak. Again in verse 29, for I always do those things that please my Father. You see, this was the will of God for mankind from the very beginning. A world free of evil, injustice, and death. A world free of sin because of man's obedience to every word that came from the mouth of God. So the fall changed all that. It turned man from being dependent upon God to being independent from God, listen, which is often simply rebellion against God. One author said, the essence of the fall of all sin is independence of God. It was by this one man, Jesus Christ's obedience, that God at last was able to demonstrate on earth what God had in mind in making mankind in the beginning, end quote. Every problem in the world in general or in our lives in particular can be traced back to rebellion against what God has said in his word, every single problem, whether we have done it to ourselves or somebody else's sin against us, every problem in the world can be traced back to man's rebellion against what God has said. Let's personalize it. Every problem here today, in your life or your marriage, in your home, can be traced back to rebellion against what God has said. we would only learn, you know, that God's word is not designed to keep us from enjoying life. It's designed to give us the most blessed life possible. I'm not saying obedience to God is always easy. 
I'm saying it's always necessary. And if you want to walk, if you are willing to walk in God's light, you will never stumble in darkness. You will stay on the right path, a path that God has cleared, the way of the cross, the way of obedience. You won't step off the path where Satan's got the landmines. But this is the problem. We often think we know better than God what's best for our lives. We know what God has said, we just don't want to do it. Verse 30, it says, As he spoke these words, many believed in him. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Look at how many are believing. Wow, he's having a real impact. Praise God. Well, not so fast. Hang on to that thought. Come back to it in a second. This then brings us to round three in this heated confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel. Round one, light and darkness. Round two, life and death. Round three, freedom and bondage. Verse 31, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, so many believed on his name, right? Didn't they just read that, verse 30? Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Now, guys, let me introduce this extremely important section with some introductory comments and next time we'll look at it in detail. One commentator I was reading made the point of saying that it's possible to believe and yet not believe. I realize that sounds like a contradictory statement, but it makes perfect sense when you realize that not all faith is saving faith. I'll just read these to you. You can write them down. John 2, verses 23 to 25. It says, now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs or the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So he wasn't that excited about their so-called faith, quote unquote. Well, James, in chapter 2 of his epistle, verse 19, tells us, You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. I'm reading a paraphrased version. Even the demons believe this and tremble in terror. Titus 1.16. Paul said, Many profess to know God, but in works, or by their lifestyle, or life living, they deny him. Look, even though verse 30 tells us that many Jews believed in Jesus, he tells them that the only proof that their so-called faith has brought them genuine salvation is for them to abide in his word. Verse 31 again, you see it there? He said at the end, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. The Greek word for abide means to continue or to remain. The word translated indeed means truly. So Jesus is telling them, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, implying that there are those who are false disciples who follow Christ. And please notice, this is not a conditional statement. 
Jesus didn't say, if you continue in my word, you will become my true disciple. Continuing in the word of God doesn't, listen, earn or purchase your salvation. Instead, Jesus is saying that continuing in God's word, and the idea is obedience, of course, is the proof or the fruit of genuine salvation. This verse always reminds me of the warning Jesus closed the Sermon on the Mount with. Turn to Matthew 7. I always think of this when I read Jesus' words here in John 8. I think of Matthew 7, uh, where Jesus is closing out now the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to notice in Matthew 7, verses 15 to 20, he first warned us about false prophets. But then in verses 21 to 23, he went on to warn us about false professions. Let me read those verses to you, where he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many uh, wonders in your name? And then I will, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Look, he's basically saying to these people, to all of us, make sure you're not deceiving yourself. Many will be shocked he tells us, on the day of judgment to discover they won't be going to heaven. And remember who Jesus is talking to here. These aren't atheists or agnostics. They're not the irreligious. No, these are those who are very, very religious. But Jesus says that they are also very lost. Look, many people have been deceived because of false prophets, and that just means false teachers, pastors, TV evangelists. There are many who go to hell because they have sat under the teaching of false doctrine and have been deceived. But many others go to hell. Now listen to me. Many others go to hell who sat under the teaching of the truth in Bible churches, yet have never made a real commitment to Jesus Christ. These have deceived themselves into believing they are Christians. Let me end with this. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. It's pretty self-explanatory. Self-deception, I believe, is a greater threat to a person's eternity than false teaching. What are some of the causes of false, or uh, excuse me, of uh, self-deception? We're talking about those people who go to church and are not saved who are deceiving themselves. What is are some of the causes of self-deception? First of all, number one, a false sense of assurance. A false sense of assurance. This is due to the fact often that many Christians, after they pray with someone to receive the Lord, they will then tell them something to this effect. Now listen, you are a child of God from this moment on. Don't ever doubt that. Because if you doubt it, you're denying the word of God and giving place to the devil. Yeah, I understand where they're coming from. But that's a very bad thing to tell somebody who has just prayed to receive Christ. 
The problem with that is we don't know what's in that person's heart. We can't be certain that they have received Jesus Christ in truth and are now born again. We have to wait to see if spiritual fruit is produced. Didn't Jesus say that? You will know them by their fruit. And of course, fruit takes time. You don't plant an apple tree and come back in three or four hours and expect to pick apples from it. A new Christian, well, there are some evidences right away. But if you really want to be sure, I don't get excited. I'm sorry if you've come up and asked me to pray with you to receive Christ. I'm happy to do that. I'm not saying I'm, it's not that I'm unhappy. I'm just, I just don't want to get excited until I see some fruit. You know, that's all. You, you want to, Pastor, can you pray with me to receive Jesus? Absolutely. And I try to go through what's involved a little bit. Pray with, for them. And uh, often they leave here with great joy. Wonderful. But as Jesus said in the parable of the sower, there are those who receive the word with great joy. But after a while, they fall away because their faith wasn't genuine. Hey, I want to see fruit. Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruit. And sometimes that just takes some time, okay? So a false sense of assurance. Number two, another cause of self-deception is, is a failure of self-examination. These tend to be the folks who take God's love or his grace or both to such an extreme, listen to me, that they never really faced honestly and therefore never really take seriously the sin in their lives. These people are sprinkled throughout the church. These are those who feel that as long as they believe in God, go to church once in a while, and live a good life, quote-unquote, whatever that means then God's love will cover them and eventually carry them all the way to heaven. See, in their minds, God's love is everything. God is love. You wouldn't really send anybody to hell unless you're a mass murderer or something like that. So, you know, as long as I, you know, go to church once in a while, God's love will carry me through. And because of that mindset, they never practice any self-examination even though we are commanded in the New Testament to do that very thing. Number three, another cause of self-deception is a fixation on religious activities. A fixation on religious activities. There are many people who have grown up in church, or maybe they've discovered church later in life, and now they attend faithfully and are involved extensively. Praise God. I mean, they go to church and enjoy singing the songs, hearing the sermons, reading the Bible, and being involved in all their church's functions, activities, and outreaches. Nothing wrong with that, uh, per se, unless, unless these things become a substitute for a true relationship with God. Don't forget, once again, the people Jesus talks about in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23, are not the irreligious. They are very religious who apparently had based their relationship with God on their religious activities. There's a lot of that going around, by the way. Because they are so involved with church, involved in ministry, 
you know doing good things to help people that's not bad that's not wrong but some people don't realize that they've they're looking to those things as proof that they're really good with God and Jesus said you know you've uh, they said well we haven't we done many wonderful works in your name and prophesied and so on and so cast out demons now that doesn't mean they really did those things they think they did every false prophet on tv thinks he casts out demons every day and you know and does miracles and things like that you know you talk to them that's all they ever do is open the eyes of the blind and do these incredible miracles they think they're really doing those things some of them i think are that deceived self-deceived and yet Jesus said of these people, when they stand before him in the day of judgment, he's going to tell them, depart from me, I never knew you. Pretty sobering, isn't it? And the last one I'll give you, and we'll close. The final cause of self-deception is what we'll call a fair exchange approach. Fair exchange approach, what is that? Well, it's what some have called the fair exchange or the balancing out approach. Uh, this is the person that when they see something wrong in their life, somebody may point something out that's wrong, instead of repenting and turning from disobedience to obedience towards what God has said, instead they find something good in their life and they make, listen, a fair exchange. In other words, they rationalize their sin in their mind by thinking that the good things they do will balance out the bad and the positive will cancel out the negative. You'd be shocked to know how many people subscribe to this kind of thinking. In their minds, and you'll hear, say, you'll hear, hear the talk. Um, you'll hear them say things like, uh, well, I'm not perfect, but I, I believe I've lived a good life, and so when I stand before God, he'll let me in. What are they saying? Well, I've done some bad things, and that's on one side of the scale, but I've done a lot of good stuff, which has kind of balanced the scale. In fact, if it just tips a little bit in my favor, I'm in. I'm in. Try that with a judge, by the way. <laughs> Going through a midlife crisis, you decide to get crazy one day, steal a car, or take a little joyride. They catch you. Bring you in before the judge eventually, and you stand before this person. And now here's your line of defense. Now, Your Honor, I know I stole the car, but you know I've never done anything like that in my life. Look at it. I've been a law-abiding citizen all of my life. Certainly, all my good stuff will outweigh this one bad thing I've done. And what's the judge going to say? Look, you don't get any points for keeping the law. That's what you're supposed to do. But if you break the law, you have to pay the price, the penalty. Look, Paul the Apostle said, if we judge ourselves now, good, honest self-examination, we will not have to be judged by God someday. If you take inventory of your life right now, honestly and sincerely, and if there's areas in your life that, you know, maybe indicate, yeah, I really haven't accepted Christ. We'll talk about that more in a second. And you get right with God now. Well, there's time, great. If you wait until you stand before Jesus and give an account, and everyone will, it's too late to change that. 
Again, examine the evidence in your own life and make an honest judgment. Is your life different today than it was before you accepted, quote unquote, Jesus as your Savior? Are you continuing in God's word? Can you look at your life now and say a transformation has taken place? You know, I'm not the same person I used to be. I can honestly say that things have changed. The things I used to like to do, I used to like to party and take drugs and, and have sex out of wedlock and lie and steal, and, you know, and, and people will say this. That's what I used to like to do. But since I've accepted Christ, I honestly can tell you that all that's been replaced with a desire to go to church and to read the Bible and pray and hang out with Christians and tell others about Jesus. Guys, a transformed life is the greatest proof that you have crossed over from Satan's kingdom of darkness and death into God's kingdom of life and light. And the real issue, and we're done, the real issue that Jesus is dealing with, yeah, in Matthew 7, but especially here in John 8, 31, is he is contrasting true saving faith with an empty profession of faith. How can we know what kind of faith we have? Listen. Saving faith is demonstrated through obedience to what God has said, while the other is mere lip service. Again, verse 31, Jesus said, If you continue in my word, if you continue in my word, the idea is obedience, you are truly my disciple. I'll leave you with what John said in his first epistle, because he nails this. 1 John 2, verses 3 to 5. Now, by this we know that we know him. Okay, here it is. This is the test by which we know we're really Christians. If we keep his commandments. He who says, oh, I know him, I'm a Christian, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him, in Christ saved. So Jesus will go on now to tell us some things. And of course, he's confronting these evil men who believed they had saving faith, but did not. So Jesus Christ is challenging them. He's confronting them. And you know, I think maybe some of them did get saved. Because at the cross, there was probably a few of these guys, and they saw what happened when Jesus was crucified. And uh, I think that some of them, well, we'll see that as we progress, but um, God is always reaching out. He is always reaching out, saying, come to me. Now, if a person's very hard-hearted, he's going to say, look, I've given you enough truth. The time has come. Act on that truth. Accept me as your Lord and Savior right now. And then we will start on a journey together, and I will continue to reveal my truth to you for the rest of your life. But today starts with salvation. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, Father, you've given us light in your word. And if we walk in that light, we will never stumble in darkness. The world is full of darkness, lies, deceptions. If we step off the path of righteousness and truth, we will get into the weeds of Satan's deceptions and lies and be, and be uh, destroyed eventually. Father, we just pray that you would Touch the hearts of everyone here. If they don't know you, Lord, that they would not leave here without receiving you as their Lord and Savior.
And Father, we thank you and ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. And once again, bless all the moms for their hard work and labor of love towards their families. Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.